This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, so we're kind of continuing our theme. Well, we're definitely continuing our theme of Scripture alone, but continuing our development of how we stand on this. Um, And Roman numeral three, the internal testimony of the Spirit. So this third point, this third heading, is, seeks to resolve how do we gain certainty that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, it probably sounds like I'm just answering the same question five times, but uh, what is the only basis for life? What is the only basis for believing the Bible is the basis? And how do we know that the Bible is the basis with certainty? And in Calvin, these, these would have come in a cluster of pages, so it's, uh, it's, so it's a kind of an odd thing to pull them out, but they're, they are distinct um, doctrines. So historical development is alongside the previous point about the self-attestation of Scripture. Calvin taught that we gain personal certainty that the Bible is the Word of God through the witness of the Spirit. Now, this is, this, is, this is where the argument hinges. If the Bible gives its own evidence that it is the Word of God, then the Spirit is the witness that seals the evidence in our heart. So if the Bible gives its own ef- evidence, if it's the juror on the stand, so to speak, or not the juror on the stand, but the witness on the stand, maybe the jury gives its... Uh, agreement. So, uh, so it's bearing the Spirit of God, bearing witness, sealing this evidence in our heart. John Calvin again says, as God alone is a fit witness of himself in the word, in his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. He says another place, if we desire to provide the best way for our consciences, that they may not be perpetually beset by the instability of doubt and vacillation, and that they may not also boggle at the slightest quibbles. That's the way Calvin is translated, I guess. Maybe not, not the way he talks, but I think it is the way he talks. We ought to seek our conviction in a higher place in human reasons, judgment, and con- or conjectures, that is, in the secret testimony of the Spirit. So it's helpful. So they come together. Self-attestation and internal testimony come together as a package deal, so to, so to speak. Uh, 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 if self-attestation is autopistos, if it is automatic faith, then the faith it creates is born of the Spirit. Do you see? Martin Luther talked about the... Uh, the external clarity of Scripture and the internal clarity of Scripture. And the quote we have there is about his internal clarity of Scripture. He said, the truth is that nobody who has not the Spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the Bible. The Spirit is needed for the understanding of all Scripture and every part of Scripture. Westminster Confession of Faith says, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the, the word in our hearts. <coughs> so, uh, 
so you kind of get the development of the argument now. Um, scripture clearly teaches that the doctrine of the internal testimony of the Spirit it clearly teaches this internal testimony uh, to the Word of God. First uh, Corinthians two eleven through twelve. We have that for you. It says, "For we know a person's thoughts. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God." Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You know, that, that little text clearly saying we would not receive the spirit, or we would not receive the word of God without the spirit's help. We would not repent of sin, turn in faith, embrace the life of obedience. We would not receive salvation apart from the spirit's help. But it's also saying we would not receive the word of God uh, after becoming a Christian without the spirit of help. No, uh, spirit's help. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We need help to understand the things freely given us by God. So God gives us infallible truth, but he gives us divine illumination to understand those those infallible truths. Uh, John 16 says, you know, articulates a similar idea. I still have many things, this is our Lord, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, um, firstly, like if someone should ask you at some point, well, these guys wrote the New Testament. Jesus didn't intend for any, anything else to be written. You just take them to John 16. Because that's, that's a very important verse for Jesus knowing that more was going to be written about him. And so I still have many things. I still have many things to say. Isn't that amazing? He says them in all the epistles. I still have many things to say. You cannot bear them now. You're like, no, brew a cup of coffee. Jesus, keep going. You know, but he's, you can't bear them now. But the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you. And so that is a very important verse for understanding inspiration, for understanding what was going on when, when Peter says, um, you know, some things in Paul are hard to understand, as in other parts of Scripture. But it's also referring to the work of illumination, this internal testimony. So what is illumination? Uh, illumination is not new revelation. So, you know, um, it, it, in the sense that Scripture, when it's illumined, when the Spirit of God it, it comes upon us, Scripture does not become something it wasn't before. There would have been a lot of arguments in the 20th century that was said, Scripture is not the Word of God, but it becomes the Word of God in illumination. That's not accurate enough. So Scripture, illumination is not new revelation in the sense that Scripture becomes something it wasn't. Illumination is not the Lord giving us a particular verse. Now we do that, you know, we have verse, I... What was that verse I was thinking about yesterday? 
I almost wrote it down and stuck it in my pocket. I probably should have. Then Zechariah 4 about a mountain being for you, but the Spirit is help. It was two days ago, so you can cut me a break. But um, it's not like, you know, sometimes we, we get a verse, right? Um, and what, I, what I'm saying here is, we, you know, we flip up in the Bible, we find, and you should be looking for a particular verse, but uh, illumination is not when the Bible speaks something to you that it never intended to speak, you know? So like when you find a verse in the Bible that tells you to get on a diet, you know, <laughs> in, in the book of Zechariah, you know, that was never in the book of Zechariah. Just leave Zechariah out of this. You might need to get on a diet, but don't, don't bring him into this, you know? Or what boy to date or what college to go to. You can go to these like, these, these verses that inspire. But the point is, illumination is it's not a new thing. Illumination is, is, is confirming the original thing, the original intent of the text in your heart and life. And obviously you come with questions and you should write down verses and stick them in your pocket, but write them down when they're saying to you what they've always said. So illumination, therefore, is when the Spirit bears witness to the truth contained already in Scripture. It's when the Spirit helps us understand what a particular text is actually saying so that we receive it as the Word of God. So um, the meaning of internal testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit seals the truth, uh, uh, seals the truth of the Word in the hearts of believers. You know, while we receive, while we seek, and we should seek to receive the Bible for what it is, the Word of God, only the Spirit can do the work of full persuasion. That's what the reformers were arguing of the truth of Scripture. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. How did that happen? First Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's what he's saying. You receive the Word of God as the Word of God because of the work of the Spirit in you. You can't receive the Word of God as the Word of God apart from the Spirit. That's why the, the Bible ultimately, you know, you can have like really good scholars that are not filled with the Spirit, not in the charismatic sense, but in the sense that all Christians are confessing Jesus Christ and following and obeying Jesus Christ. But at some point, their scholarship is going to dysfunction because they cannot understand the Scripture apart from the Spirit of God. So we shouldn't be surprised when it dysfunctions. There's good, good, good guys. I mean, J Jordan Peterson just did a lecture series on Genesis. They went on to Exodus. There's, there's some interesting things in there. There's times where I just completely disagree with him. I don't think you're putting the Bible together rightly, but he's crazy brilliant and fascinating to listen to. Um, for, for this reason, internal testimony of the Spirit, the, the Reformers, one of their rec recurring, and I know y'all say the attributes of Scripture at some point this year, one of the recurring emphases of them was the clarity of Scripture. 
The idea was, Scripture self-attesting, and the Spirit uh, is a witness of it, and so Scripture's clear. I love the diet of Speyer that says this holy book is in all things necessary for the Christian. It shines clearly in its own light. That's a beautiful understanding of the clarity of Scripture. Martin Luther in the, in the bondage of the will, he's, he spends a lot of time talking about just the clarity of Scripture. Now he's kind of shoves in your face. You don't understand because you don't have the spirit, you know, like uh, it throws it at you a little bit. Uh, uh, Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of light. In your light do we see light. I think it's amazing. So, uh, sub point two, the spirit and the word work inseparably together. The spirit, therefore, and then this is helpful for us because of our doctrinal positions. The spirit is not a lone ranger. The spirit is not a free agent. Wait, I thought the Spirit was the wind that blew wherever it wills. Yes, but it's the wind of truth. The Spirit is tethered. There's a massive danger in the church and in some of the worship movements for um, an untethered spirit, an experience untethered to the Word of God. That's usually when the church gets in massive trouble. The Spirit is tethered to the Word. The Spirit is tied to the Word to take what belongs to Jesus and tell, us, tell it to us. The Spirit has an agenda. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Word of God. It's all that's necessary for life and godliness. It's the Spirit is tethered to the Word and it's part of Him being tethered to the Son and the Father. In the Reformation, there was a tendency immediately in the midst of the Reformation, the tendency to separate the Word of the Spirit from the Word. Piper, I mean not Piper, another John, John Calvin, older John, uh, identified a similarity in this respect, an untethering of the Spirit and the Word in the Catholics and in the radical reformers. He said, the Pope boasted of the Spirit of God directing his teaching beyond the teaching of Scripture. The radical reformers boasted of the Spirit enlightening the mind without proper attention to the Scripture. It's fascinating that both camps, he said, was the same error. The untethering of the Spirit and the Word of God. That same failure has continually surfaced in the history of the church. Separating the Word from the Spirit. And so... Calvin famously argued these, these are inseparable. Uh, implications for us. The implications of the internal testament is spirit. The spirit gives inestimable comfort and assurance to us through the word of God. The spirit gives in, 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 inestimable comfort and assurance of the word of God. Who has found life in the gospel? Who has found strength in the promises? Who has found comfort in the sovereignty of God? Who's found sanity in God's wisdom? Who has found security in God's protection? They found it by the, word, uh, by the Spirit of God. Where else do we go? These are the words of eternal life. Every time you've found something in the Word of God, 
that has brought comfort and assurance has been the work of the Spirit. Several months ago, I read the, the, um, the Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Just an amazing book. And um, I can't remember the name of the concentration camp they were in. They were in this barrack just filled with fleas and it's so nasty that um, the Nazi soldiers would not even go in there and do their normal despicable things. But she and her sister smuggled in a Bible. This is what she said. From morning until lights out, Whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. A shaft from heaven, like waifs clustered around a blazing fire. We gathered around it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burn the Word of God. That's what the Spirit does. You want a word from God? That's what the Spirit does. It, it, it brings about an encounter with God Himself. Not an encounter with truth, like truisms, like, like, like patterns for the ways we live. It, it, it affects an encounter with God Himself because the Word is self-attesting and then the Spirit it, 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 it gives the testimony, the witness that you are approaching the, the eternal God. And so, it's the anchor. What, uh, it's the anchor. So, yeah. Um, but this does not mean we always have a real sense of the Spirit's testimony in the Word, right? It doesn't mean, and that's where illumination would be helpful to say, illumination does not necessarily mean goosebumps and warm fuzzies. It may mean get your act together. You know, it may, it may mean like, uh, you know, James pointing through the text in your face. Uh, sometimes we have a deep personal sense of the Spirit's presence and illumination and meditation. Sometimes we do not. But what I want to say is, um, nevertheless, we must read the Word, and the more we act on it, on the fact that God promises to testify to the Word by His Spirit, the more likely we are to sense His presence. So the fact of His promise to declare more things to us by the Spirit of God in the Word of Truth undergirds the perception of His presence and how He's working in our lives. And so I would, you know, commend you to, to live on the promise, not the perception. Uh, Sub-point two, the Spirit accompanies the Word whenever it is read, studied, or preached. The general work of God in our daily life, the sense of his presence, blessing, etc., will occur through the reading and studying of Scripture and the power of the Spirit. If the Word, if the Spirit is the powerful train that moves us, the Word are the tracks on which it runs. And so, if you want to encounter God, you know, go hike Ch Charlie's Bunyan sometimes, but go most often to your Bible. Like, Go there. 
That's where the Spirit is. That's where the Spirit testifies. That's where the Spirit works. John Newton says, In general, God guides and directs His people by affording them, in answer to prayer, the light of His Holy Spirit, which enables them to understand and love the Scriptures. By treasuring up doctrines, perceptions, promises, examples, and exhortations of Scripture in their minds, they grow into a habitual frame of spiritual wisdom and acquire a gracious taste which enables them to judge of right and wrong with a degree of readiness and certainty as a musical ear judges of sound. So what the Spirit is after is not kind of isolated experiences and warm fuzzies. The Spirit is after maturation. It's after maturity so that you're, you're, the powers of discernment are trained in your heart and mind. You're able to judge what is good and bad just like a composer judges what is good music and what is bad music. That's what the Spirit is after. He's not the genie of experience. He's not God's genie of experience. <laughs> or, you know, you, you ask for warm fuzzies or all those things. He, he's, he's trying to, he's, a, he's God's uh, comforter. He's God's maturing agent. He's God's conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. J.F. Packer says, the true way to honor the Spirit as our guide is to honor the Holy Scriptures through which He guides us. The fundamental guidance which God gives to shape our lives is not a matter of inward promptings apart from the word, but of the pressure. Now that is a wonderful word. The pressure on our consciences of the portrayal of God's character and will in the word, which the spirit enlightens us to understand and apply it to ourselves. That is gold. You know, the spirit's work is not a matter of inward prompting, but a, a pressure on our consciences to conform us to the image of God, to the character and will and the word which the Spirit enlightens for us to understand. So it's no surprise for this reason the Reformers devoted themselves to reading and studying the Scriptures with the expectation of the Spirit's work. But, you know, and I think what's, what's, what's powerful here is that in, in line with um, upholding the Word and the Spirit together, the Spirit refused the path of Catholicism and the path of the radical reformers and devoted themselves to preaching. They, they devoted themselves to the Word, to the Word being unleashed. Uh, uh, they devoted themselves to a careful study of the Scriptures. So before this, a lot of the, reading would have been uh, um, 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 it would have been done for you you would have heard it you wouldn't have read it and and it would have been just kind of formulaic lectionary type reading same readings this day on the 22nd of October next year on the 22nd of October like that well the this, the the reformers pushed they said they pushed at the verse by verse exposition of scripture Calvin has a famous story he was in John 13 I believe like around 34 or something like that. He, he, he hated Geneva. He was in Geneva, but it's a long story. But he was kind of forced to stay in Geneva, and that's where his ministry shaped the whole world. But he left for three years. He tried to run away. He tried to leave Geneva. He came back three years later. Got in the pulpit. He went to the next verse. Like John 13, 30, 33 or something like that. Three years later, John 13, 34. That's what he instilled in Reformed churches, this, this, this uh, careful verse-by-verse 
expositional approach to the scripture and also a comprehensive pursuit of the scripture. John Calvin wrote commentaries. I don't, even, I don't know the books he didn't write on. It may have been Revelation, but he wrote on almost every book in the Bible because he preached on it. He introduced, he began the new commentary movement of the plain, uh, simple explanation of scripture to serve the church. So they devote themselves to preaching. Word centered. So sometimes we can think that, you know, like our, our, our church is too focused on the word. Maybe we have a Sunday just to worship, you know, just to worship, uh, just to sing. No. <laughs> no, let's have it. Let's add a service for the word, actually. Um, this is what they believed. This is what they instilled. It was a ministry of the word. Obviously the word wonderfully and the spirit. The most dynamic spiritual moment on a Sunday morning is the preaching of the word. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, I don't really feel the spirit here. Did you see what just happened? And so God matures us slowly. Sometimes we think too slowly. Goodness gracious. He, he matures us under the preaching of the word in the power of the spirit until we see him face to face. Calvin has this quote somewhere. He says, eh, God seemed, deemed it fit to mature them slowly. Not by, yeah, it's two yard gains on Sunday morning. And sometimes you want a wide out. You want Jalen Hyatt in the slant, crushing in the end zone. Well, most Sundays are two yard gains. Spirit just doing a little work. Just a little bit of light. Not because he's limited, but because we are. Just, just trying to move the ball forward. So, uh, Subpoint three, the Spirit loves to answer our prayers for illumination. Piper has made this well-known, these IOUs. They're fabulous prayers to pray. All of them are essentially prayers for illumination. Incline my heart to you not to prideful gain or any false motive. Open my eyes and behold wonderful things in your word. Unite my heart to fear your name. Satisfy me with your steadfast love in the morning that I might sing for joy all my days. All right, Roman numeral four. Uh, uh, this question. Pushes the argument a little bit further. So if. How do we, how do we know, how do we, what's the proper basis for life and for all that we believe about God? How do we know that's the right basis? How do we personally confirm that that's the right basis? This is kind of takes it a different way, but how do we rightly interpret the scripture? So how do we, in the, in the act of interpretation, not fall victim, not revert, or, or, or not backtrack, not, not, not fall victim to basing our life and our understanding of Scripture on our own understanding. That's what this is protecting. It's called the analogy of faith. 
the principle that scripture interprets uh, interprets scripture in the pursuit of the, in the in the in the pursuit of interpreting scripture in the middle ages there were various approaches a common was looking for a fourfold meaning in scripture and a literal allegorical tropological and anagogical um, um, you know so literal that makes sense it's literal means literal uh, uh, allegorical means you know um, uh, it's a uh, figure of speech, meaning the meaning refers to something else. So like uh, the allegory of uh, a lot of people would interpret lot, 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 interpret the Song of Songs as this allegory of, of Christ and the church. But it's erotic, so it's a little disconcerting to read it that way. Um, but the idea is all throughout it, you know, it's talking about that. I think it's really a, a picture of godly, um, uh, um, committed uh, marital love, um, which obviously does point to Christ in the church. But they would push for that allegorical meaning. Uh, tropological is just looking for moral principles behind everything. What's the moral of the story? Anagogical is like a future tense. Luther re- re- rejected the fourfold approach. He said, I consider them dangerous, useless. They even canceled the authority of Scripture at times. Luther argued for the literal approach, and this is some of what I was getting into in that last point in internal testimony. The literal approach is what the literal approach is the author's intended meaning in the original context. So literal doesn't mean literal in some senses. Like when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he doesn't mean I'm a loaf of bread. Right? You know, all you gluten-free people can't relate to him, you know, but uh, (laughs) I am a loaf of bread. He's saying, I'm what you must eat to live. You know, and receiving in John is, believing is receiving and receiving is embracing. Embracing is partaking is what's going on in John's gospel. So I am who you must eat and consume and embrace fully and completely in the same way you embrace a loaf of bread in order to gain eternal life. Same way Jesus says stuff like whoever doesn't cut off his hand, right hand if it causes him to sin, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The literal is not cut off your hand if it leads to issues you know the literal meaning is sin is serious and it will condemn you to hell if you play with it so the goal of this literal approach which was not complete not created by Luther but um um re-articulated by Luther is to um, let the author say what he's trying to say. It's been called the grammatical historical approach. Just the grammar in history approach. Uh, John Calvin, I, I think we may have that in there for you. It is the first business of the interpreter to let his author say what he does say instead of attributing to him what we think he ought to say. Now that sounds like simple, but... Uh, or, or it sounds just too obvious, but it is the approach most consistent with sola scriptura. 
In application of the literal approach, Luther argued for the fundamental approach to biblical interpretation. He argued that the fundamental interpretation, the fundamental approach to biblical interpretation is the analogy of faith. Luther says scripture is its own interpreter. Based on the conviction that God is the sole author of the Bible, scripture is the only infallible, unerring interpretation of scripture. Because Scripture itself is, if we can put it this way, God's interpretation of Scripture. Scripture's interpretation of Scripture is the only way we know we're standing on God's interpretation of Scripture. The only way we know we're standing on God's understanding of what is good and right and true. So, Scripture should be read in light of and interpreted in light of Scripture. To put this together, our confirmation that the teaching uh, of a certain passage is right is not because our understanding of the passage, as good as that is, or other people's agreement with our understanding of that passage, as good as that is, but the agreement of other passages of Scripture with our understanding of that passage. Does that make sense? That's, that's how we know we're standing on Scripture alone. Not when we understand it, which is good, not even when other people understand it, what we understand, but when Scripture itself professes its understanding of that same passage that we're trying to understand. That sounds like a mouthful, mouthful but it's so important. Martin Luther said, Now, if any, of, any one of the saintly fathers can show that his interpretation is based upon Scripture, and if Scripture proves that this is the way it should be interpreted, then the interpretation is right. If this is not the case, I must not believe him. So, what's the foundation of that? What's the biblical foundation? Is that true? Uh, the pr- principle of proper application of sola scriptura is such that our interpretation of scripture is based on the conviction that God is the sole author and therefore the only infallible interpreter. I think is confirmed. I'm going to argue. I, I believe. I don't think. I believe um, is, is seen in, in New Testament in the most important way. And, and how it brings together the unity of Scripture. First and foremost, um, well, well, how Scripture uses Scripture to defend its own points. Right? That's not merely like a footnote, you know, that's good. Let, let you know you read bro- broadly or something like that, you know, uh, which is some of what footnotes are. Just, just letting you know, I actually read. You know, that's not what's going on in the New Testament. They're showing the full witness of all of Scripture in every part of Scripture. And so you see it. Uh, a fascinating example is, is 1 Timothy 5.17. This is in providing for pastors and preachers that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Interestingly enough, Paul is, so he's, he's declaring a principle that should be upheld in the New Testament church. And he defends it. He quotes, he does, defends it by quoting Deuteronomy 24, 25, 4, and by quoting Luke 10, 7. So that tells us, if you want to understand canon, that Paul, it makes sense, Paul was, was uh, Luke was Paul's doctor, that Paul had Luke's translation in some form at that time. Or at least it heard those stories. 
in Lucre and Orlea County, he says. But the point is, he confirms that principle in, in both Testaments. You see it uh, in Acts 15 as well. Um, the, the church is at a crucial juncture. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, how should they treat Gentiles? What should they do about these Gentiles? You know, there's some people, um, uh, you know, there's some, some people that are, that are Christians essentially uh, abiding by Levitical laws, by the uh, laws of the Old Testament. And there's, there's these Gentiles. So what should we do? Should we make them over, undergo those same laws? And they, and they go to Scripture in their decision-making. I don't remember the exact Scripture off the top of my head, but they go to, go to Scripture. The same thing goes on in a most important way. Uh, uh, this principle is undergirded by the unity of the Scriptures around Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says in Luke 24, when he's walking down the road to Emmaus with, his, with these disciples, he says, you know, all of the scriptures testify about me. And he's, they said he went through the law and the prophets and talked about how they testify about him. And so he's saying the only right way to interpret scripture is in light of Jesus Christ and letting scripture interpret scripture. So the implications of of the analogy of faith are very important. Um, I list them out in four subpoints. Interpret scripture, and we'll take a break in a few minutes, and then we'll just come back to my last little chunk, and then we'll have some time for Q and A, if that works. the implications of analogy of faith is it would encourage us to interpret Scripture respectively. What that means is interpret the secondary in light of the primary, the obscure in light of the clear. This means that our conviction about the abomination of desolation should be different than our conviction about substitutionary atonement. Our conviction about the days of the earth should be different than our convictions about Adam being a historical man. Our convictions about uh, just so many things, they should be proportional. That's what it's getting at. Uh, They should be respective of the weight of the scripture. And so, like, if you build an argument on a single text. Don't do that. Or at least if you do, like I was talking to somebody about what is going on in, in 1 Corinthians 11 about head coverings. Goodness gracious. He says they should be worn in all the churches. Well, there's definitely some cultural elements on I can tell you everything I believe about that passage. But one thing you have to say, nowhere else talks about it. So, maybe don't browbeat your neighbor about it, you know? Maybe don't build your whole ethical life upon it in a way more than you would on don't forsake the gathering together or something. Second sub-point, interpret Scripture harmonistically. Words are harder to read when you get behind the pulpit. I'm telling you the truth. So you don't pit Scripture against Scripture. You know, uh, don't pit 
don't don't say stuff like the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. God of the New Testament is a God of love. Don't pit. You know, it's not going to get you to a proper understanding of Scripture to pit. Uh, John, First uh, John 1, anyone who says he's without sin is a liar. First John, what, 4 or something? No one born of God sins. Don't pit those against each other. You're not going to find the meaning there. Or, you know, women are the first to spread the news in, in multiple Gospels. But in Mark, they remain quiet. Don't pit it as a contradiction. Now, that, there's some, that's some hard things. But the idea is you're assuming, by not pitting them against you, each other, you're assuming if there's an error, the error's in me, not in God, and not in Scripture. The error is in the, the people of the first century. Would, they, they already knew that, that uh, the women were the first to, the, to the, um, come away from the empty tomb. That was well known. So they're trying to say something different. Mark's trying to say something different. And so, uh, so interpret Scripture broadly. Uh, you know, broadly noting the broader patterns and links across the, the rest of Scripture. So prophecies, promise fulfillment, types. You know, understanding patterns is huge for rightly interpreting Scripture. Understanding what is going on. Uh, uh, what, what is the argument of, of Hebrews? What is it trying to make? It's trying to bring you into a pattern of promise and fulfillment that threads throughout Scripture. And so it explains why you do not obey certain laws anymore, why you do not avoid certain meats anymore, why you do not do a number of things anymore. It should change the way you read much of the Old Testament. I know y'all just went through the moral law, uh, and so it doesn't change that, I would argue. But it, it, but it does change things. Um, and uh, obviously, changes what we celebrate, changes the way we practice feasts and things like that. And so there can be a real danger in going and interpreting something from, from the Pentateuch, let's say, without placing it in the proper pattern and understanding. So, uh, fourthly, uh, interpret Scripture Christocentrically carefully noting how all of it is fulfilled in Jesus. Martin Luther said, this is a long quote, but it's great. Now the Gospels and the Epistles of the Apostles, so, so when someone says gospel-centered preaching is a new thing, just let's take them to Martin Luther. Now the Gospels and the Epistles of the Apostles were written for this very purpose. They want themselves to be our guides, to direct us to the writing of the prophets and of Moses in the Old Testament so that we might read, their read, and see for ourselves how Christ is wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. That is, how he is comprehended in the writings of the prophets. It is there that people, should, people like us should read and study, drill ourselves and see what Christ is. For what purpose he has been given. How he, is prom he was promised and how all of scripture leads towards him. That's very Luther. To find him in the swaddling cloths. He's saying, if you don't, you don't know about Jesus, don't stop at the New Testament. Take up the whole Bible. All of it's about Jesus. Scripture is not about you. Scripture is about Jesus. You know, one of the, the um, occupational hazards of being a pastor is um, you perform weddings. So some people in this room have performed their wedding. And... Um, 
you're up there at their most intimate moment. <laughs> you know, like you may kiss the bride, ah, you know, and they're they're kissing and they're in that moment. And sometimes you'll go to somebody's house and you'll see your you in this picture of that moment or of them confessing the covenant. Now, now, you know, it'd be really foolish though for me to go and see myself and say, ah, that picture's all about me. Well, the same thing happens when we read Scripture and think it's all about us. Scripture is all about Jesus Christ. So to interpret Scripture rightly, we interpret it Christocentrically. It's all the story. Everything is pointing to or reflecting on or announcing the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. I love the way um, Stephen Charnack says it. Is Christ not the subject of the whole Scripture? And like a golden ore runs through every vein of the mind. He is the center wherein all the lines of Scripture meet. We can open no part of it, but something of Christ strikes upon the mind. That is so helpful. So the analogy of faith. All right, let's take... We're going to be quick this time. Five, and then I'll come right back up and walk these last things, and we'll do some questions, all right? So five minutos. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash u.